Wendy Tui is an Australian editor, journalist and columnist who has spent the last three decades working across print, digital, TV and radio. She has won multiple awards working in senior roles with The Age, Sydney Morning Herald, ABC Radio and The Herald Sun and is a passionate advocate for women, gender parity, mental health and speaking truth to the reality of the working mother juggle in a modern world. So in this episode, we ask Wendy about the role of the media in a volatile world. We ask about the hidden currency of care that women are often carrying and also how parents can more consciously model behaviour to override gendered stereotypes and unleash authenticity in their children and in themselves. This was a really compelling conversation. It really was, Mads. I think that Wendy has gathered years of wisdom and insights from telling and reflecting on other people's stories. Today you get the sense that she really is someone who knows who she is and why she's here, and that her purpose is to tell human stories and always has been. Here's Wendy. Wendy, you have been a journalist for, would it be close to three decades now? Yep. Across print, digital, TV, radio, you've won multiple awards, um, worked in many senior roles at The Age, Sydney Morning Herald, Herald Sun. Was journalism always the dream? It was for me, yes. I decided in year 10 that's what I wanted to do and I absolutely set my heart to it and I used to study the newspapers in the school library take notes because I knew the age had a um, a 100 question general knowledge test based on the year's current affairs so I wanted to get prepared for two years later when I was to take the test and um, yeah no it was always my thing I've always been really interested in explanations for the world around us and in people so and was there something about your family of origin that instilled that in you? Probably just having the ABC radio on. I mean, probably a lot of people would say this, but mum always gardened with the radio on. A lot of people in journalism, I think, have had a strong presence of a newspaper or a radio and we had The Age and the ABC. I was always interested in the actual facts of what was happening in the world just as, as a kid. I mean, this generation, they're all interested in the facts of what's going on in the world. They don't even have that luxury of... A period of blissful ignorance. So it's been a long-held passion and you've had amazing experience in the industry. I'd love to know your thoughts. Can we just jump straight in the deep end? Yeah. We're not ones for small talk really, are we? So I'd love to know from someone as experienced as you, what are your thoughts on where journalism and media are at now? Ironically, during COVID, the best of us is coming out. And where journalism and media in Australia are at is there is a very wide-ranging group of media companies who are held to a very high standard of accountability by the press council and by readers and by their own internal codes of ethics. And right now you are seeing the best of media in Australia. There's a, I mean, I'm not just saying this because I work at The Age. Readers are actually saying thanks. I, I believe that I'm getting good representation of what's going on. So for starters, during COVID, I think the performance of Australian media has been great. As an industry, it continues to be under mega stress. Then again, in, in the early 80s when I was dreaming of journalism, I was told there's no jobs. I mean, there, there are jobs and you can get into journalism. Um, and there's a premium on people who do uh, work that's, you know, that's grounded in fact. It's undergone such an incredible transformation, though, in recent decades, and you obviously have been witness to that. What is the fundamental role of journalism? Well, I would see it as twofold, obviously. One is to keep people informed about the realities and facts of what's going on around them, to remove veils that, that are placed up between, you know, 
business and politics and um, the public service between reality and what they want you to believe to try and strip away that artifice and to show people what is going on, how your taxes are being spent, how your COVID hotels are being managed. Um, you know, uh, what just really to, to corruption, like the, the role of the media, number one, is, is to reflect back exactly what's happening in the world so we are well informed. On a softer side, the softer side of the media I think that people do still look to it for is reflections of their own lives. Like I want to see myself and my experience reflected in the media. In those stories. Yep. So here's the rub. Where we see the contraction of advertising dollars into traditional media, uh, print and, and the like, and we see an algorithm clickbait-driven mediascape now. Well, yes, in, in arms of it, yes. How how do you keep your head up above the water then? Where This is a real problem. Um, clickbait is becoming less viable as a business model because everyone's moving away from page views to quality clicks. So now, in fact, you will notice there is less of those headlines saying you'll never guess blah, blah, or wait till you read da, 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 or Lose whatever. weight by sundown. Yes, exactly. I mean, those platforms are collapsing and, in fact, that business model, when, when international companies like BuzzFeed have tried to come here and make money off that, it hasn't worked. So I think Australians have a fairly low tolerance for it and a fairly high BS detector. It's degraded the image of media definitely that in the last sort of 15 years that clickbait model did take off when raw page views were the main thing advertisers wanted to pay for. So, yeah, the tone came right down and just kept going down. But now, interestingly, what advertisers want is because the volume of people you're getting to is smaller because there's so much competition for the eyeballs. So what they want is quality clicks, which is engaged readers who will stay on a piece longer than 0.5 of a second and potentially stay there long enough to read an ad and also be the readers your company wants to speak Mm. to. And the audience niching that we're seeing yeah. occurring, as you know, to some regard. But what I do know, what's, lots of journo mates say that they are trying to spread themselves really thinly across so many platforms. You can't just write a story. You've got to have a social media presence. You've got to disperse yourself, um, you know, in digital forms. Is that sustainable? Yes. I mean, I'm living proof because I, I started at the age when we had typewriters and triplicate paper. And I'm now, like I had a blog at the Herald Sun in which I moderated all the comments and you know, I, I'm. Then I was hired. Most recently, I came back to Fairfax to edit the lifestyle digital platforms across the whole masthead group, and now I'm back writing and chief of staffing on the the print paper on Sunday. So, you yes, it's certainly viable to do to be upskilled, and it's very good for us to be upskilled, um, no matter what stage of your, your career you're in. People are being spread very thin. I mean, the the fact is we should be worried about how few journalists there are in Australia making a living from it now because we don't have enough eyes on what's going on. There there just aren't enough journalists. And when you see things like those AFP raids, which are trying to silence real journalism, you realise it's more important than ever. And Australians really do, you know, there is a high level of outrage around that. But, I mean... These are these are one or two serious investigative journalists, and there's a, there's a clique of a small clique in the ABC and, and Fairfax Media mainly of um, investigative journalists who are still making a living. But we, you know, it's a dire cutback that we've gone through, and, and it is unviable for us as a population with what we want from our media to continue to let it boil down. But I don't think any media companies worked out the secret ingredient of how to make enough money to hire more journalists. 
Wendy, you are a champion particularly of women and girls and issues including gender equality and women's health and motherhood and the wellbeing of girls. And you once said something about your biggest lesson being that in order to continue in your career, it's important to stay in touch with your employer during maternity leave. Oh, definitely. How do women do that when they're so consumed by the many balls they're juggling and particularly we're familiar with the construct of mental load Yes. that women tend to carry. Yeah. The f- sort of most forward-thinking companies now have programs which facilitate you staying in touch during maternity leave, but they are few and far between and they're mainly people, they're mainly companies who have got some very, you know, high-asset women who are important key people to the business and when they have a baby they don't want to lose that corporate knowledge and, and the potential of that person to come back and do even greater things. But that's the creme de la creme type of situation. Um, for, for your average woman, it's it's hard, I think. And I've every almost every woman I've ever interviewed about what was it like coming back for you. The, the number one thing they all say is I lost my confidence, or my confidence took a massive whack, and so I accepted lower, or I I, I sort of didn't protest when I was put on the mummy track. I mean, the best way to do it, I would say, is just to keep in regular email touch with with people inside the business. That said, particularly with your first baby. It's really tempting to go, oh, no, this is a special time for me and my baby. We're in the baby bubble, uh, which I did. Um, And and furthermore, I took a couple of years off when I had my third because I thought, well, three kids under five or whatever it was is a career. And I that was my choice. I I just didn't want to have regrets in my 50s. That was my mantra. And I don't regret it, but you do take it. You definitely lose. You take a whack. I think Annabelle Crabb described it as the biological disruptor. When yeah. women step out of the workforce, what happens is they get a compound disadvantage down the line yeah. where they will fail to ascend into more senior roles or they'll take on part-time roles. And even if we look at the current pandemic world, we know that women have been disproportionately affected by Very much so. um, unemployment because part-time roles are the first to go or casual roles. So yeah. it's this hidden currency of care that women carry that goes so unspoken in workplaces. W- what do you think employers need to then better understand about women who work outside the home and inside the home? Look, I think they understand that they're getting a very good deal. I mean, I'm actually a little bit cynical, to be honest, because we've also, I remember writing a piece called The Four-Day Fallacy, which went nuts online with a colleague of mine, Casey Edwards. And um, basically, employers know, they absolutely know now, and the, the research backs this up, what a good deal they're getting from part-time working mothers, because they are all business. They go there, they work very hard. They don't do online shopping, they don't go for coffees, they just get there, go like a tank and get home. And they're they're trying to prove themselves. And they're the picture of efficiency and they're so grateful. That's the other word you hear all the time. Grateful, grateful, grateful. Mm. Um, And they do go above and beyond because because they, you know, they don't want to jeopardise this blessed arrangement. Now, the one thing that may be coming out of COVID that could be useful is now everyone's had to work at home. Um, maybe the bias that still exists against part-time workers in mainstream business. They don't, employers don't really love part-time work or job share. Let's be honest, they don't. They prefer you to be full-time, visible, present. That's just how it is. Every, anything else is lip service, I believe. I mean, and as I say, the fancy companies have fancy policies. What they actually mean on the ground, well, if they meant something on the ground, more men would be using those policies because they'd feel secure enough 
to take part-time. Wendy, you also personally, you've got three kids, two dogs, multiple deadlines, and you would have interviewed countless experts over the years. I've done a lot. (laughs) What have you gleaned from the expertise that you've heard? The most sensible thing that, that I can think is you just honestly have to know, you have to know your limits um, so as not to break your mental health. You, you have to look after your mental health is probably my key, the key learning I've had from any of the psychologists, psychiatrists type, social observer, sociologist type interviews I've ever done that women like us who are working and have children and have a lot on our plates, even if we have a lot of energy, a lot of bandwidth, a lot of self-belief um, and a lot of experience, we do tend, you can tend to sort of do too much. And, and I guess the most important thing I've learned out of all, in, all my interviews about how are women juggling, how are we managing, how are we fitting it all in, how can we do it better, how can we uh, live a rich life without ending up like a tiny little frayed piece of rope is you have to, I think, each person has to know themselves very well and protect your mental health as part of the equation. Now, this is an interesting question coming from a psychologist, but what do you mean by protect your mental health? Because it's a catch cry that we hear, but I think a lot of people struggle to translate well, it. Well, it's so basic. It's just about sleep, exercise and healthy diet. It's just so basic. And whether you're a CEO or, you know, a journalist trying to be across two platforms and type on two keyboards at once, mm-hmm. digital and print and everything else, work becomes much, much harder. And I think stability is definitely um, enhanced in a very large way by exercise, sleep, social connection and healthy diet. If you're not okay, then everything else around you is affected. But what about the mental fodder that, you know, the world is awash with content and information. We've got multiple pressures on Uh, us as working women. What is it that you say, what's your mantra to keep yourself centred? I just think be true to yourself. Like I'm authentic. I know that sounds like now like a meme, but I don't. I believe you can take your whole self to work, and you're healthier to do so. Um, and I also think you have to be aware of your. You just be aware of your limits. Uh, don't be afraid to go beyond them when you know you are going beyond them. But sort of, I, I try and be aware of when I'm really am pushing it too hard, trying to be too many things to too many people. Realise I don't have to compete. I've got nothing to prove. None of us do. If you're true to yourself, you've got nothing to prove. Mm. You're doing something that makes you feel getting up in the morning is worthwhile and that you go to bed going, I like myself. Did you know that in your 20s? No, definitely not. In my 20s, I was incredibly adventurous. I took a lot of risks. You know, I left the age when there was in the middle of a really bad recession. You know, people were telling me how brave you were to leave and go and travel and I'd applied for a scholarship in Paris, journalism exchange, but I had no idea whether I'd get it or not and I just took off. And people were saying, oh, you're very brave. And I was like, I'm 25 and I've been in one job seven years. I don't think there's anything brave about leaving, you know. Surely that's just what you need to do to keep growing. Healthy risk isn't a bad thing. Problem is when you're at my end of my career and and I've written about so many people to whom bad things have happened, that's the one downside of working in the media. You do know about risks your children face, risks you face, you know, yeah. It makes you, a, a whole long career in media makes you value the people around you very, Does it very also much. give you a dystopian worldview? Look, court rounds did give me a dystopian worldview in my 20s or, you know, being very young and sitting in the magistrate's court, sometimes in tiny little upstairs court in the old building in Russell Street um, next to people who'd done just terrible things to women um, and, you know, the evidence 
bag would be next year with a small, you know, tomahawk with dried blood on it or whatever. Yes, definitely I I, I realised how naive I'd been in my childhood. Court, court rounds both gives you uh, an unwanted but necessary, if you're going to be a journalist, glimpse into what people are capable of doing to each other and justifying to themselves. You, can, you get a sort of a gallows um, sense of humour in terms of, okay, this is this moment's all we have. I'm going to make the absolute most of it, you know, like. Did you have to grow a skin, though, do you think, get thicker in the skin in order um, to cope with some of the stuff you were having to see? Oh, and definitely. Like Look, that's the other thing that I think is a mantra is don't get too tough. I mean, be, mm. be, be ready to still hurt. You have to still be able to feel hurt if you want to be an empathetic journalist and person. And my great joy, everybody's different, but my thing is the people. I'm in it for the people and the stories and the real you know, people sharing their stories and me being able to write their story up well and honestly. And if you grow too thick a skin, that would be really useful in political reporting and police reporting, but my thing is more human interest and I think if you really want to communicate people's stories, you've got to be open and you've got to have an open heart. So you can't afford to get too tough. Yeah, how does this translate to parenting for you? You've got two sons and a daughter and you're sharing some of your your wisdom and what you've learned over the years. How does it translate as a parent? Well, I'm too protective, but then again, every time I interview a, a policeman, a senior policeman, because I have written a lot about violence against women, every time I've interviewed a senior policeman, at the end of the interview, I say, look, here are my neuroses about my 13-year-old, 14-year-old daughter and are they too much? I'll say that the interview's over now. Can I ask you a personal question? I never, you know, blur the lines. And and they'll say, they all say the same thing, man or woman, with policemen. They say, no, you're not being too neurotic. It is a dangerous world and it's made me much more protective of my kids too and mm. um, more likely to put limits, you know. So as a feminist, you're like, women should be able to walk, women and girls should be able to walk the streets at night and not be attacked by men. It's men's responsibility not to attack women it's, it's potential perpetrators need, who need to be held to account and perpetrators, not victims, you know, this dialogue, women should stay out of parks, it's ridiculous. But then when push comes to shove, do I want my daughter taking those risks, knowing what I know? No way. What lights you up? Um, well, other people. Mm. I mean, I, I have a lot of friends and I'm very fortunate and blessed and um, laughing with them and not taking ourselves too seriously and Look, I mean, you know, it sounds so corny, but just I've just always really enjoyed the company of my children, and uh, I've never been let down by it. They're they're really stimulating, exciting people to be around, and I love their whole demographic. I'm living with three exciting young people. It's pretty awesome, um, and my friends too. Like we, I just think life is very short. We're frequently reminded of how short it can be, and um, if you can surround yourself with people if you're lucky enough to at work as well as at home and in your friendship group uh, who are really willing to show themselves to you and be seen and who you feel comfortable with showing yourself to, uh, then you've got a charmed life. That mm. and having enough money to get by. Uh, one thing I've never done is BS'd my kids about the real state of things. You know, if things aren't going well or, you know, we've had moments of, you know, trouble or stress, I let them in. I don't pretend. I think it's really good to know that you can get through struggle and you can, you know, you can find a way even when you don't think there is a way at the moment. It's tempting to throw down and have a tantrum or, 
you know, give up or feel like you're hopeless in a situation. You yeah. can generally find if you keep – that's when you need to go into four-wheel drive. That's my favourite saying really. I'm just going to go into four-wheel drive and, oh, like you know, that. go up – ride up over that shit, you know, like I what, – What gear are you in usually then if you're not in four-wheel drive? Um, look, I think it's better for your heart and blood vessels and cardiovascular system if you're not relying entirely on your adrenal glands to get through your day. Whereas I have many decades of experience of relying on my adrenal glands and I know they function really, really well, but it's probably a function of my age, I'm over 50, that I want to preserve my well-being on all fronts, as I said earlier, because I think, you, you know, a lot of people look at career as like I need to shoot up as high as I can as fast as I can, but... I think you're in it for a really long time and it's not bad to pace yourself. It's a marathon. Yeah, and to find yourself energised in your 50s about what you do and loving it, that's okay, you know. What does empty nesting look like for you? Because you're talking about these three precious people that you love spending time with but they're not going to live with you for the rest of your life. Well, I am very fortunate in that I have a major – I do have a lot of friends. I have a wonderful family as well but also I'm I'm single at the moment but I feel whole. Now, I have spent time alone in the last – you know, two and a half years since I I ended my marriage, I go to the bush if I need to cheer myself up. I just go and look at the birds and walk and hike. Wilson's Promontory National Park, which is this vast place, just a wilderness, where if you're not comfortable alone and, and being alone in your own skin somewhere isolated, then you don't want to go there because it's it's an isolated place in an isolated part of Victoria in the middle of Bass Strait. Nowhere to and hide, I, but that's the point. Yeah, and you can go down there alone, which which I have and would again. And um, one of the good things about getting older is you can accept all the pieces of your life that you might have been hiding in a drawer somewhere, don't want to look at, you can actually pull them out, have a good look at them, slot them all back in, the puzzles everywhere, all the pieces are where they should be and it reduces your fear. I mean, I don't fear being alone and that's a great freedom to have. Mm. That's awesome. I like that idea of puzzles, like putting it out, examining it and then putting it back in. Who was the philosopher who said the unexamined life is not Mm. worth living, Socrates or someone smart? Lots of journos have a book inside them. Are you one of those? Do you feel like you've got a book that one day you might write? I don't know. I think it would have to be very good uh, in order to bother because there's a lot of books around there, out there. There's a lot of books by journos. Um, There's a lot of books. There's just like I have worked next to the books editor and I see how many books are being produced in Australia and the the volume would depress you if you're an aspiring author. Um, I've... I feel like my bandwidth is fully absorbed at the moment. You know, I, I touch wood. I'm a really reliable, solid, honest, hard-working employee and same as a parent and I want to be the most reliable friend and, and present person in my friends' lives as I can be and I just don't know how I'd do it without getting to the end of my string. I, mm-hmm. I, as I said, I think if you're comfortable in your own skin and you don't feel like you have anything left to prove, you know, if, if some book idea springs into my head that's that I think is different enough from the other 25 million, <laughs> fine. Then uh, just let us know and you can come back on for a yank. What's, what's the last book you read um, for, for pleasure, gosh, not work? What's the last book I read for pleasure? I'm actually only reading facts lately. I'm, I'm, only, I'm obsessed with um, science currently. I'm just reading a lot of really interesting experts and epidemiologists around the world about this bloody virus. I mean, it's affected us so greatly and I pick up a nice novel or something less you know factual and current 
urgent and I just I can't concentrate mm. on it at the moment. Do, do you think the world's going to be all right? I think we're in for... I think it's tough. I mean, the thing that bothers me the most about this is what it means for our children's economic future, for employment, um, for their worldview. I mean, they're already, let's face it, deeply distressed about the environment, much as that may be written off by people like Andrew Bolt. Um, They're worried. They know they've been given a bum deal by previous generations, which they have, Um, and now they've got this this other thing. Like, I'm... Yeah, I, I don't know how we're going to come out of this like we were. I don't know whether their life will be anywhere near what what ours has had without too much gut-busting. We've all been able to have a very comfortable life. When I say all, in our generation, the middle class in Australia is, is very vast and not not massive numbers of people have been left out of the possibility of finding secure employment and housing, although I'm very well aware from writing about them there, you know, way too many people are. Um, However, our kids could have previously grown up with making a certain set of assumptions about what their life would look like and those have been pulled away. So I don't know whether we're going to be okay at the moment. We will in in our generation, but what about them? Mm. It's a bit bleak. Yeah, and it speaks to probably our final question, Wendy, and and something that we ask all our guests is we are acknowledging the complexities of life and now more than ever, really. Who do you think is doing human well? Okay, well, that's a very good... Oh, my God, that's a great question. I mean, I love Michelle Obama. Um, She really inspires me on so many levels. And also she talks about... She's pretty has been anyway very transparent about you know the early days of their marriage when he was campaigning the whole time and and in his other roles on his way up and she was left to do everything and she just found the bloody strength good on her um she is doing a great job i love penny wong as an australian political personality i trust her i really believe in her and i trust her and i think i feel safe knowing people like her i love knowing are out there tanya plebisek Again, very transparent, very honest, very honest about her husband's previous troubles and, and you know, straight up and down, ready to own everything and also a great feminist and a rational one and very evidence-based. Um, so I love all of those three women, what they're doing, lead, their leaders, their leaders in my mind. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I could keep going, but yeah, but people you're, like that. You're describing women that have values that sound, after our chat, I think closely aligned with yours around transparency, around facts and still compassion. Yeah, and, and, and they're also not, they're not pretending, you know, that pretense, I think we're past the point where pretense is useful anymore. We've, we've all been through the fires and we're in them still in Melbourne um, and all we want is a bit of the real stuff. We can handle the facts. We, they may not be good, but we've got to work with them. Mm. Um, I have a lot of faith in humanity. I, I think people are basically good. I think Australians are basically very good. Um, and we have to find somehow within us um, some optimism that at the moment can be a little bit sparse. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds bad. But. Well, thank you for being so honest and real with us. Real human stories is what gets us up in the morning. What would be your one piece of advice that you'd give to an aspiring young writer writer or or journalist? Um, Well, don't be put off. Don't... Your dream, if, if 
if it's a dream that is meaningful to you, is valid. You have every right to own it. Don't be poo-pooed by people telling you you can't make it. They will and they, they do. Um, believe in your own voice. Your voice counts. Your voice does count. Um, and you, if, you are, if you're able to just stick at it and, and look, if you can try and find a mentor, I mean I have mentored young women and I'm always happy to do it, um, just to basically continue to reinforce the fact that they have a right to be, they have a right to take up space, they have a right to have their voice heard and they have something to say. If, they, if you're dreaming of a, of a writing or a media career, you have got something to say. Um, and you know that you will f- face barriers, but just don't be put off. That's a very long answer. Bravo. Thank you, Wendy. Yeah, no worries. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us, and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 